Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Mark Watson. Based in Sedona, Arizona, Mark is a consultant specializing in deep learning, machine learning, knowledge graphs, and general artificial intelligence software development. He's the author of over 20 books on a wide variety of topics, including AI, deep learning, Java, Ruby, machine learning, JavaScript, and more. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark underscore L underscore Watson, and check out his website at markwatson.com. Mark is the author of a number of LeanPub books. His latest is Practical Python Artificial Intelligence Programming. In the book, Mark covers deep learning, symbolic AI, and a wide range of tips and techniques for using Python both in experiments and in production. In this interview, we're going to talk about Mark's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as an author. So thank you very much, Mark, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. You're you're welcome. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. Thanks very much. Um, we were talking a little bit before we started recording that Mark's been around on LeanPub uh, since 2013. So this this uh, meeting between us is is long overdue, uh, and we're I'm just really excited to have him on. Um, so, Mark, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your origin story, as we call it, uh, where you grew up, where you went to university, and how you found your way into a career in uh, AI. Yeah, great. Um, yes, yeah, so I uh, was raised in uh, Berkeley, California. My dad was a uh, physics professor there. Um, because of my dad, I got access when I was in, let's say it must have been 1964. I got access to uh, a basic timeshare system on the ARPANET. And so it sort of you know, gave me the idea that you can program. I didn't really even know what a computer was when he, he sat my older brother and I down and, and let's play with it. Uh, but I, I always sort of liked gadgets and, and, and making things. I had a uh, Charles Babbage-style mechanical computer when I was, was really young, and my older brother taught me to play chess and go. So, uh, you know, I, when I wasn't playing vacant lots with my friends, I, I had a pretty wide range of interest even as a little kid. And... Uh, when I was in high school, I took a Fortran programming class at uh, UC as an extension class, and it was, it was really great. It really clicked for me. Uh, we had punch cards, and you would give your deck <laughs> to somebody on staff, and an hour later, you get your printout back. And I thought that was just the coolest thing ever. But then... You know, it was years before I had access to computers again. And as a physics uh, student at uh, Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, and I thought, you know, I'm going to take a uh, a programming class at the, in the engineering department. So I take this class, and it's was literally writing a program and toggling in the program on the front panel, like an old Altair computer. Um, I was not very impressed, uh, but uh, I got a, a bachelor's degree in physics and, and and totally enjoyed it, but really didn't want to be a physicist. And uh, I, I guess uh, a friend of the family suggested uh, a company, uh, SAIC, was just starting in, in San Diego, and uh, because I had a physics degree and I, you know, knew Fortran, uh, it was an easy hire decision for them. And I discovered that I absolutely loved loved programming. It just uh, was just, you know, didn't even uh, seem like uh, work for me. 
Yeah, no, fast forward a little bit uh, to, uh, I guess, the late 70s. I read a book called Mind Inside Matter by Bertrand Raphael. It's about artificial intelligence. And I was just hooked. The idea that you could somehow make a computer and, and, and in some way uh, mimic human intelligence. I just love that. And uh, in my spare time, I wrote the chess program that Apple gave away on the early Apple IIs. And I wrote a go playing program uh, for the Apple II that I, that I sold, ran ads and sold it. Um, and then I started learning uh, Lisp uh, on my own time. And kind of a funny story, but uh, I, uh, by some really random coincidence, I uh, crewed for the founder of our company, had a big ocean racing sailboat. So I crewed for him and his, his family as navigator and got to know him. And during that time period, a bunch of us in the company, we only had like 20, 25 offices at the time. We was not the big company that we later grew into. Uh, we got really interested in AI and we wanted hardware list machines, which were expensive ticket items, right? Uh, and the company saw the bill and went, no way. Uh, and uh, but the founder of the company and the, and the corporate treasurer who had uh, gotten a, a uh, his graduate degree at MIT and knew Lisp uh, and liked me, they decided they would just buy me the, the darn thing, and they, they gave me quite a, quite a bit of time, uh, uh, usually about maybe 30% of my work week, I, I could work on literally anything. So I did some commercial AI products, expert system for the tool for the Xeroxless machine for the Macintosh. Uh, I got really interested in artificial neural networks and I sat on a DARPA advisory panel for a year for neural network tools. And for me, like I was just a programmer, my business card that Mark Watson programmer on it, right? And on the DARPA panel, I was with all of the famous people who were, you know, the, the pioneers in neural network theory. But the thing is, they were all academic and I implemented all of their algorithms and uh, and we sold a library called SAIC Ansem. And uh, so in a practical matter, way, I really understood their work fairly well. And around the same time, my company was building a bomb detector for the FAA and the statisticians that were doing the modeling for that were using a linear model to try to see if there's a bomb in luggage or bomb, no bomb kind of thing. Sort of like Silicon Valley, hot dog, no hot dog <laughs> classifier. Um, and it was basically a failure. And uh, somebody on the board of directors uh, had seen some of my demos uh, with neural networks and was aware of what I was doing. And they sent me up to our uh, office in the Bay Area that was you know, doing the contract. And uh, in about a day, we plugged in a backprop model and it worked. Um, and so then I was, and th this was in the late 80s, right? So then I was really hooked on this. And then, uh, you know, by 
kind of accident, you know, different opportunities come up. I really moved away from AI and I did uh, two large distributed systems, one for DARPA as a nuclear weapons monitoring system, worldwide sensors, and then another thing for Pac Bell and a bunch of other R box for fraud detection. And uh, so even, even though there were AI people on those projects. It was really an engineering project. Um, and I kind of skipped something very important. <laughs> uh, near, near the beginning, after they got me the list machine, I wanted to very much uh, uh, get some government contracts and do AI work and not have my company pay for it. Uh, out of uh, internal research and development funds. And so uh, I got the idea that I should write a book. And I, I met uh, through social connections, uh, Bill Gladstone, he had a, a big um, agent company in uh, Del Mar, uh, close to by where my wife and I lived with our family. And uh, make a long story short, he sold a contract to Springer Verlag, and I had this book idea common. Now, tell me, as a publishing professional, if you think this is a bad title, uh, the title of the book was Common Lisp Modules, like libraries. And my editor, she was a no, 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 your book is about neural networks and chaos theory. So she kind of <laughs> named it Artificial Intelligence in the Era of Neural Networks and Chaos Theory. And I learned a lesson. There. <laughs> uh, and, and so anyway, uh, just writing one book uh, really opened things up, up for me and opportunity wise, because I, I only had a bachelor's degree and was in the wrong field in physics, not computer science. Um, and so uh, that was great. That really kind of kickstarted my career. And I, I, and I wrote uh, uh I guess about 10 books for McGraw-Hill and Springer Verlag, Morgan Kaufman, John Wiley. And uh, it was always kind of fun. I mean, like uh, when uh, Earl and the kids were sitting around watching TV at night, um, uh, I would as often as not be in the same room working on a book, which I found a little bit more interesting uh, than TV. <clears throat> uh, and so anyway, uh, yeah, I, I got to be pushing 50 and uh, my wife and I decided we really didn't want to be in the rat race anymore. And so we moved from San Diego to Sedona, Arizona, beautiful place up in the mountains, bought a little tiny house here and thought we would kind of uh, retire. And I had a, an idea that I would do some writing and whatnot. Um, and so for years, uh, I got out of the habit. I think I, I, my last book was for A Press. It was, that was published like in uh, hard cover form. Uh, but I, I really got tired of having to do what a publisher wanted me to do as far as content and whatnot. I was always pretty agreeable, but I didn't really feel like I had the uh, freedom. And it was, I think, uh, around 2003, Lawrence Lessig started uh, Creative Commons, Creative Commons uh, license. 
and I had um, uh, written a book that did pretty well. Uh, it was my first Java AI book, and I was supposed to be write a second edition of that, but um, I started working remotely for a uh, AI startup company, which totally got my juices flowing. I didn't really want to do anything else. Um, so I ended up not finishing that book and the publisher, Morgan Kaufman, I cannot believe how generous they were. They let me keep the advance and they turned back the rights of the book to me. You know, just what uh, wonderful people. Uh, and so when that startup uh, went uh, bankrupt, as, as so many of them do, uh, I thought, oh, I'm going to finish that book. And uh, and I wrote it, uh, released the second edition with the Creative Commons uh, license. And then Lawrence Lessig uh, made me the second Creative Commoners. Uh, you know, they would feature for a couple months. The first guy was... Um, Lassiter, I think his name was. He was a, uh, a, a movie director who did Waking Life and a bunch of really cool movies. And so anyway, I found myself giving away this book. And I would, for the five or six years that I kept track of it, I was getting three to 400 downloads a day of, of the book. Um, so plenty of good, good feeling of that, you know, People seem to be appreciating it, and I get you know, a lot of email and, and feedback and whatnot. Um, uh, and I guess uh, I, I kept going in and out of this period where I would like not work for six months and go hiking and kayaking and whatever you do up in the mountains, and then I get really bored and go back to work. And in uh, two thousand and 12 to 13, uh, somebody at Google invited me to go there and work on it. Uh, it's a fairly short term project. I got you know, my wife and I you know, went to Mountain View and enjoyed the good food and all that stuff and uh, enjoyed their their tech. And when I uh, got back home from doing that, I decided that I really liked writing. And that's about the time that I, I, I discovered uh, LeanPub. And uh, the one, one thing I, I really like about it was my last book before LeanPub, I wrote using LaTeX, and there's just all this overhead. And I would <clears throat> spend, you know, two hours messing with stuff for every 10 hours I'd spent writing. It seemed like a waste of time. And so I really kind of fell in the groove with LeanPub where there was like, there was no overhead to it. There was nothing to figure out. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, and so, so for quite a while, I, I, I basically just wrote and I, I eventually did, I took a job at Capital One uh, several years after that, uh, running a deep learning team. Uh, my wife and I, for a few years, went to Urbana-Champaign, Illinois, and where that team was located. And that, that was an awesome job. But, uh, you know, eventually came back to Sedona and started uh, uh, writing again. And uh, that's... Uh, 
I hate to say synopsis of my career because I kept running on. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That was that was a really fantastic story. And there's a there's a lot of there's a lot I actually want to try and ask you about. Um, and I'll try and do it in a, as as coherent a manner as I can. But um, just before we sort of maybe go back to the beginning and and I, when, I guess that's sort of what I'd like to do is sort of the theme of like commercial AI throughout throughout the decades um, uh, would be what I'd like to through your you know personal very hands-on experience with it um, but before we do that though um, I said you had this great line I think on one of your recent blog posts where you call yourself uh, you're currently a gentleman computer scientist yeah uh, <laughs> laugh out loud because that that's just an awesome way of putting it but you're I, I believe you're currently uh, you, you do some consulting for um, a South Korean company called mind AI yeah that, that, that that's correct um, okay I, I originally actually did, uh, I started with them about nine months ago when I did one large technical task. They had this huge uh, common list application and I did some work on uh, breaking it up so they could horizontally scale it. But uh, when I finished that, um, I didn't really feel like being a developer, you know, I, I'm in my 70s, right? So I, I get to do what I want. <laughs> and uh, and and so right now I'm, I'm really just an advisor, which really means I spend a lot of time on Zoom with them. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. It's, it's, it just sounds really, uh, really just sort of like kind of like, you know, you get to live in the mountains and you get to do this cool work with a company uh, like, you know, you know, thousands of miles away. And uh, it just it just sounds amazing. Um, but um, one thing I wanted to I just sort of to, to go to go back to the beginning one of the sort of um, themes that's run throughout the podcast over the years, since so many, not all lean pub authors are sort of programmers, but, or, or people in tech, but many, many are. And so it's become a bit of a kind of like jumping back and forth kind of time capsule for people's first experience with, with computers um, and all around the world as well. Right. So, you know, I remember um, interviewing someone who was from Crimea and he, he remembered sort of having to, um, you know, do uh, write programs out by hand when the power was out, you know, kind of thing. And this was this would have been like in the early, early 21st century, you know, um, or uh, Jerry Weinberg, who I believe, like, I think he he was the first computer he ever met, you know, that he was hired by, to be a computer. Um, uh, and uh, but so your first experience with with a computer and, and, and by the way, a very common experience is a parent um, uh, often often bringing the the computer into the home and then the sort of person just becomes sort of enamored with it. But in your experience, you were taken to ARPANET. Uh, that's just amazing. I mean, what what was like, just for people who are interested in the history of computing, like what was the what was the room like, if you can remember? What was the interface like? You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was on the Berkeley campus in the physics department. And there was a teletype with yellow paper tape. And uh, when something would work, we could punch out paper tape that could then be fed back in. That was the local storage. There is there was no storage. I won't call it in the cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, and I and I didn't get a whole lot of time there uh, between my dad, my brother and I, we all wanted to fiddle with it, right? Um, and, you know, my dad's 101 and he still is a is a computer geek. Oh wow. He, he does video editing. He likes to do. Um, I work before we moved to Sedona. I had like a midlife crisis job where I went worked at Angel Studios on uh, Nintendo video games. And I was a tech lead on a virtual reality project for Disney, um, which was really quite grand, big motion platform, dinosaurs, wraparound screens, reality engines and, and whatnot. Uh, and uh uh, you know, funny personal story. Uh, like 
I skip around jobs a lot, but I tend to work with the same people over and over. Like like last year, I had six visitors uh, in Sedona. People visit me that I used to work with, including somebody who is my manager at two companies 40 and 45 years ago. Um, you know, uh, so I, I, I tend to, even, even though I, I tend to job hop, I do have loyalty to people I work with. Um, and every time I change jobs, my dad would always be really upset because he always thought my last job was the best <laughs> one. But, but when I went to, to do the, um, the entertainment stuff, that he thought was pretty cool right off the bat. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's 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 it all sounds really cool. I mean, you know, getting on being in, in DARPA and stuff like that, and you know, being in, invited around to all these different kinds of projects. But yeah, I guess I guess what I, I, I let's let's maybe try and uh, talk. The, I guess one of the things that I find so fascinating when I was researching, you know, your your background and and your books for this interview was, you know, what was the I guess the question I wanted to ask was like, what did when when you were sort of getting into AI, say in like the early nineteen eighties, was there a sense of constraint that people had or was it just a sense of like you know wonder wonderful openness i mean you know for example given given the what we would now view as very limited kind of computational kind of capacity for the machines that you were using and the incredible expense uh, that you would say that for example you would have to sort of be be sort of friends and trusted by the ceo to get a company to actually buy you the expensive machines that you needed was there was there a sense of like Oh my God! Where are we going to be in forty years? That that people had like like you that were actually like hands on. Well, I had drank the Kool Aid. I I really believed that AI was going to be a real thing in ten years back then, and uh, and that is despite the fact that uh, <clears throat> project wise we would have small successes and a lot of failures. You know, like I remember uh, uh, my company bought one of our remote offices, a, a connection machine, the first connection machine. Uh, and everybody was so enthusiastic about that. But it turned out it was very difficult to write code for. Uh, and uh, and and just, uh, you know, many sort of AI type projects really didn't pan out and uh i i was i was really pretty lucky because nobody ever got mad at me when a project didn't work and sometimes they did right? uh, you know, yeah and i guess so, i guess to kind of drill into the detail though for example like let's oh, say um uh, let's let's uh of, of all the many interesting things you mentioned you know using kind of uh, ai to uh, do to to see if there's bombs in suitcases or in luggage or in and I, I don't know pallets going into airplanes that you were doing in the mid to late 80s that you mentioned what 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 do you mean what do we mean when we're saying AI in that kind of very very commercial like I mean it couldn't be more practical kind of context yeah well um, I, I would say the use of AI would, in that context is more marketing than substance because if you look at the actual code, that I contributed to that project. It was probably 250 lines of C++ code. Uh, and, you know, so it was, it was like nothing. 
I mean, it's like, you know, a lot of effort put into to, to learning, you know, which kind of models to use and whatnot. Uh, and so that was just, that was like, like a gift <laughs> that basically just something that worked out really easy. Um, like about like, like a painful example, like uh, there were mo- multiple divisions in my company that wanted to get a contract for an AI uh, battlefield advisor and system. We were a defense contractor um, and uh it was like we spent just tons of money trying to end. And I was a very small cog in that wheel, but we really put a lot of effort into it and uh, didn't get a contract. Some other big, bigger defense contractor uh, got the contract and, uh, and 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 the whole thing was a failure. I mean, they, they didn't really get anything out of it. Uh, and so, you know, so so there was there was a lot of excitement, but and I can't remember exactly when it was, but uh, it, it really people well they call it the A at first AI winter, and people just sort of lost uh, lost interest in it. Um, uh, but but another success I, I mentioned. Uh, that uh, my company was a, was a lead on a, a DARPA expert system to detect uh, nuclear illegal nuclear testing, and my my part of that was distinctly not AI, uh, even though that was about the time my first AI book was published. I I was like straight up engineering. Uh, we had thirty eight data. Um, acquisition stations around the world. And back then, the internet was horrible, right? <laughs> uh, unreliable uh, satellite connections. So just going from the US to Europe might be two second latency if it was like three hops or something. Um, and and so my part of that was, was engineering, but uh, we did have a couple people and we, we teamed with... Uh, I forget what the name of the company was, but the expert system worked really quite well. And that was all done in uh, common lisp. Uh, so that, that was a big success. Uh, and then uh, I'm trying, I'm having a hard time remembering the failures. It's uh, they were there. <laughs> I guess, I guess that's, that's natural, like, and, like natural and bad enough. memories. <laughs> yeah, so, no, but it, it, it is interesting but, to think about, you know, the, the, the sense of um, uh, potential, uh, and and just excitement. I mean, you mentioned you know, mentioned it very straightforwardly that like a lot sometimes when people talk about AI being in a project, that's marketing, um, <laughs> and uh, that's definitely true to this day. I actually know someone um, who uh, works for a, st- a sort of relatively well-funded startup, not in anything. Re- I mean, it's not in anything AI related. And there was a sort of grumpy investor who was like, "Can you?" make this AI somehow, you know, so that's, that's still new to this day. And I can imagine when we talk about marketing, particularly in those contexts, it's not just, it's not just kind of like necessarily cynical marketing. It's a kind of positioning, right? Like particularly if you're, you know, a defense contractor or even a military person, you know, you might want to be able to say we're cutting edge. Um, that, that actually isn't, isn't just kind of cynical or something like, or, or just about money. Even there can be very serious and important reasons to do that. Um, but, I guess, like, let's say for you, you just mentioned, you know, the um, the uh, 
you know, illegal nuclear testing work that you did. That that wasn't that wasn't AI, but it was programming. Um, and that actually, was, that was an AI project. But my part was a straight up engineering on it. But your part was straight. Okay. And so, what would the for for someone? Let's say let's say someone who's never never written a line of code. What's the diff? But obviously knows that there's such a thing as computer programs, right? You know, um, what's the difference between a kind of let's say a vanilla computer program and an AI computer program? You know, it's, it's almost what problem you're trying to solve. I mean, uh, uh, I, 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 I spent a lot of time uh, doing natural language processing, trying to extract structured data automatically out of, uh, out of text, newspaper articles, documents, whatever. And uh, that was really kind of hit and miss. And, 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 and something that, uh, and, and, and th- th- this is really important, I think, to the broad category, topic of, of artificial intelligence, and that is scaling things from little demos that people look at the demo and they go, oh, that is fantastic, to scaling it to a real world problem. And, and then it failed. Uh, I off and on for probably 15 years, mostly off, but, but you know, cumulatively years of my time uh, was spent uh, doing conventional symbolic natural language processing and little bits of success, you know, failure, poor, you know, things that uh, just wouldn't scale. And you know, when we when we entered the world of deep learning, uh, suddenly things that were very difficult, things like anaphora resolution, that's like resolving pronouns and text to proper nouns, uh, you know, a paragraph or two back. Uh, that's a pretty important problem. A friend of mine at Google, she got her PhD at MIT just on that one thing and very difficult. You fast forward to maybe four years ago when Google first did their Transformers paper and one of the first Transformers was called BERT. And BERT basically solved down a four resolution. I mean, BERT uh, took advantage of the problem with uh, machine learning and deep learning, getting training data. Uh, they had an infinite amount of training data because what they would do is they would take text from the web, from published books, and they would randomly remove words from the text and uh, put in a, a marker token and then train it as a sequence model as it's reading the text character by character or token by token or word by word. It would train it to estimate probability distribution of what words would go in that empty slot. And so for the first time ever, there was basically three training data. You didn't have to do any human labor involved in it. And so uh, Bert, one thing, the transfer models were a very clever idea uh, and and, uh, all the free training data you wanted suddenly this very difficult problem that I had worked on, my friend had gotten her degree doing it, uh, suddenly it's a solved problem. And I uh, 
I, I, in, in between jobs, I spent about a year writing a natural language processing library that I sold. Um, and uh, one of the things I worked really hard on was summarizing text. And I, I came up with an algorithm I thought was really pretty clever. I would categorize text uh, by what classification was using something simple called a bag of words and words that that had the most evidence for a category i say oh those are important and so in a sequence of texts it would be like these islands of, of words of how important they were and i would just simply you know do extractive summarization and uh, and and customers like that uh you know it worked pretty well but then fast forward to See, I think I got access to GPT-3 maybe a little over a year ago. Um, and then suddenly I could give a model that somebody else trained. I didn't have to do anything <laughs> but call an API. Uh, and I gave him my credit card. <laughs> uh, and I, I could give a, as much text as I wanted within bounds. And it would summarize. And I could say how long I wanted the summary to be. And so I still believe that uh, uh, we are led a long, long ways away from general artificial intelligence. And I don't believe that deep learning gets us there. But suddenly uh, it's solving all of these, these really useful and interesting problems. And so I, I feel like I've been a kid in a candy store the last couple of years just because I love it when there are um, problems that just used to be insolvable. Now high school kids can do it. Um, and in, in my uh, my Lean Pub book, uh, it was published a few weeks ago. Um, I, I, I made a comment in it that uh, I, I have a U.S. patent on assigning human readable names to clusters when you do k-means clustering uh and uh, uh it was just some some ideas that uh, my team and i kicked around and we didn't really do much with it but we, we got a patent for it um and so then like five years later uh i was reading some documentation i forget which i think it was it for hugging face uh, some examples, and they had an example, uh, Jupyter Notebook, for doing k-means clustering and uh, and determining what would be good names for the data uh, clusters, which was just something that you know I worked on by hand. 10 years ago, five years ago, we did some brainstorming and came up with sort of a, it was sort of, you know, mediocre, but good enough to get a patent, which is pretty common, may I say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, you know, so to me, it's just, it's just exciting that, that we can do stuff that we didn't be able to do before. 
Yeah, no, it's it's super fascinating, and I love I love how when I asked you sort of you know what's the difference between between sort of a normal program and AI, you immediately went to sort of a certain kind of scaling, but also just language and and symbols and um uh you know symbolic AI, which I know you you mentioned in your book is good old fashioned AI uh, and and things like that. But you know the the kind of when we're talking about there's there's a kind of scaling you mentioned that sort of started to happen that I think probably sort of programmers might be more familiar with around 2010 with sort of big models and stuff like that, right? So when people think about scaling and technology, they often think well, instead of serving a hundred people, I can serve a million people with my app now or something like that. But there's another kind of scaling, which is the kind of thing that I, I, if I hope I'm using the, the term kind of correctly, but like with AI, the, the example I always like to give of like, just the, the, my background is a bit in sort of philosophy and English and stuff like that. Right. And like, if I can go to you, okay, look, here's Napoleon and here's Wellington and it's the morning of the big battle. And then Wellington's army goes like this and Napoleon's and wait, no, wait, hold on. Um, this is, this is symbolic AI and this is natural language processing, you know, and they're different in these different ways. And the fact that like our minds can sort of like turn my fists into these different things and we can understand what I'm doing and, and flip like that to something else. And then I could, it could be any arbitrary thing that I could start associating my hands with and talking about and building something around AI is the kind of programming that's sort of meant to be able to handle kind of things that you throw at it like that. And it has to have... We, we we immediately go to sort of these anthropomorphic metaphors, some kind of understanding, you know, of, of but but it, what we really mean is like, you know, effective understanding right at this point. Uh, and then so what's the, the wonderful thing that's been amazing to see and just just in the interest of time is sort of moving on to where, where you did, you do, you know, the sort of exciting time we're in now where you can ask, you know, chat GPT, which for anyone listening who hasn't heard about it, basically, there's um, this uh, uh, company called OpenAI that has this um sort of software out there that's very good at uh, at, the, at answering prompts that people can give it through a relatively recently released sort of chat style uh, interface. Um, and you can do things like, you know, I mean, given my background in English and philosophy and, and you know, sort of stuff like that, the first thing I did was, you know, write, write an essay about Hamlet on on love. Uh, and, it, and it wrote in 30 seconds or whatever, um, a, a sort of like, you know, B minus first year essay on that. Uh, and it's just amazing to see, but, you know, people have been doing so many things like getting it to sort of mimic a Linux terminal, you know, kind of stuff like that. Like, you know, and it's, it's not because it knows anything about that. It's just cause it's been, it's got this been trained on this huge database of interactions and questions and, and, you know, outputs and stuff like that. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask you uh, specifically, cause you, you've talked about this, but um, how does, how is chat GPT useful for programmers? Um, that, that, that's, that's a, that's a good, uh, uh, question. We, we, the, the, the company in South Korea that I'm the advisor for does, uh, chatbots, AI chatbots. And I'm not, actually, I probably shouldn't talk too much about our, our work, but, but be, believe me, we have lots of discussions about, uh, our mostly symbolic approach versus uh, chat GPT and you know it, it's like you know chat GPT is one of those things that uh, 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 you don't really understand how powerful it is till you use it and just a real couple real quick anecdotes um, uh, when it first came out, uh, I was reading a paper, like I wrote a Haskell book for Lean Pub, but I'm not a good Haskell programmer, but I love the language. 
So I kind of wrote a book from a beginner's mindset about something that I really enjoy. But I was reading a paper and they had some Haskell code that, you know, I can admit this, right? I couldn't really understand it. it. Used Haskell lenses, and I thought I really want to understand this. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try something. And I, it was only about thirty lines of code, and I, I wrote it into Chat GPT uh, on their web interface. I wrote, uh, explain the what the following Haskell code does: colon and then command v paste and it went and it it clearly was was using things that were not in the trained model it was clearly making some web searches on its own because it gave me information about the libraries that were being used and it took a while it took like 45 seconds uh, to give me a response. And I was looking at the code as reading with chat GPT uh, output, and I really felt like I understood the code. And later I went back and, and did a few uh, web search web searches and then and, and kind of made sure I really understood it. But um you know, being able to, in one minute, get some background on some code that I did not understand, and I'm a pretty good programmer, I've been doing it for a long time, um, uh, was just an eye-opener for me. And the, the other thing that just absolutely amazed me was I... Uh, I was just kicking the tires and I said, please write a poem in the style of Elizabeth Bishop uh, about my pet parrot that escaped out the window. And it wrote a really nice poem. And it's been 20 years since I've read Elizabeth Bishop. And I think the style maybe was sort of was sort of there. And I thought this is really cool. And then a friend and his wife were over a few days later, and I was showing her this, and she was very skeptical. And she had, I can't remember the name of her favorite poem, but a modern poet. She said, could you do the same thing? And I said, well, ChatGPT is not always running. I'll see if it's running. And it was, and so I did the same thing. And she said it was very much in the style of her favorite poet. And so even though ChatGPT is not intelligent, it's not general intelligence, just being not only being trained on most available text, open text, but also part of it that I don't fully understand because they don't talk about it, that it obviously is doing some web searching. And uh, their, their models have been around for about five years squad type models where if you give it text, they'll answer a question. And they're clearly doing that behind the scenes. And the and the Bing search demo two days ago, clearly, uh, that was a wonderful demo. Um, clearly, uh, they're going out and doing general searches, getting text, and then using ChatGPT to do 
to process that. Um, but to circle back to your question, what it does for a programmer, I, th I think the, the, the best answer is explaining that arcane piece of Haskell code that was beyond my ability to understand without doing some research on my own. And, and it's just so, I mean, that's just so amazing too, because even like, you know, I mentioned before, you know, people who might not make, they know what that there are such a thing as computer programs, but not might know what they are. And now like you, anybody can put some code in into this machine uh, and just, as you say, command V paste it in there and like get a little bit of an explanation. You know, you still you, you use it as a, a beginning point, you know, uh, for, for looking into things, but that's just amazing. I actually have to share one, one sort of related anecdote to yours. So when I, I first discovered it, I was doing this, you know, write, write an essay on Hamlet and love, write an, and I did one, write an essay on Heidegger's being in time. Um, and it did that. And a friend of mine, who's an English professor was like, ask it to write an essay, uh, uh, um, Write, an, write about Heidegger's being in time in the style of a Celine Dion song. Um, <laughs> and it did. And it did, like within 30 seconds or so. And like, you know, it kind of, it had a chorus, you know, it was using terms from the book kind of, you know, in a, in a way that sort of made made enough sense to be B minus again, you know, kind of thing. But it, you know, anyway, it's just, it's just incredible. But the idea that, you know, just to be, be very specific about like, the idea that just anyone can put in some code and have an explain a, a, a prose explanation come out uh, as a beginning to understanding things, but you know, the then it goes the other way, right? That you can like, you, of course, and the people have been doing this, you know, for a while now. But like, you know, typing out some prose and going, write me a program in this language that, or a set of code that sort of like, you know, will actually carry out these these instructions um, is also just incredible, just to think about where that's going to take us. Um, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah, we could we could talk about that for forever. Um, but just in the, I guess in the interest of time, just moving on to the next part of the interview where we talk about your book a little bit specifically. The book is Practical Python Artificial Intelligence Programming. Um, it's your most recent one. I think it's your seventh on Lean Pub. Uh, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, who the who the who the book is for. Yeah. Um, so so th this book was 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 different uh, in, in the sense that usually I mull over books for a long time. And I and I, I write a lot of program exp experiments, code, and kind of play with ideas, and then I write a book. But I've I've been so blown away in the last four or five months by GPT three and then Chat GPT uh, that I really wanted to do something quickly and. You notice in a, in a couple chapters near the end, I sort of apologize, I, dear reader, I will in a future edition <laughs> fill this material out. But I just, I had a feeling that uh, I, I wanted to just get like an idea. There, there's very little code. Usually my, my books are just full of code. And it's more... Uh, it's almost more like, like mentoring advice. Like, like if somebody says that they're interested in getting into artificial intelligence, broad field, right? Really broad field. And so what I what I was hoping was that if somebody you know needs to do like recommendation systems or if they're interested in natural language processing or I love the semantic web, uh favorite topic of mine. Uh that I expected the average reader to probably, you know, focus in on on maybe 
25% of that book that 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 interests them. And I felt like I was in a real hurry because I felt like what I was writing uh, would would um, be obsolete much quicker than usual. I mean, I mean, typically, like my Java AI book, um, I think the last two editions of that I've done on LeanPub, uh, I think uh, I've think maybe I've discarded three chapters, just material I thought was old. And that's one thing I love about um, not printing physical books is to be able to drop material when you think it's no longer relevant and slide in new material. I mean, I mean can I admit that I put out like, I think three updates to my new book in the first five days it was out. Um, and, and none of them, where it was anything that that I felt like had to have all of the readers be notified that there was an update. But it was just like, you know, so I got a really nice series of emails from one person in particular I didn't know that was really jazzed about something. And he said, oh, by the way, I found a typo. You know, so the typo was fixed. And it was a wonderful feeling that uh, people who, you know, read the book for free online which I'd love having that available um, or, or, or got a copy uh, or the book reader uh, would have that fix in it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's just that fluidity that, 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 I, that I love. And then typically uh, with LeanPub, within about three or four months, it seems I usually do something that's, pretty much of an upgrade. And then I click that box to notify readers uh, uh, that, yeah, you probably want to grab a new copy. And then I, you know, I'd have to go actually go look back in history, but then it seems like then I usually let them sit for a year and then rework them again. So the seven books that uh, I've written for LeanPub uh, and you know, with three updates, which I love, uh, uh, you know, it's more like a living thing. I mean, I remember um, I wrote one lean pub book on a language that I don't really like, but a lot of people have paid me to write code in it, and that's Clojure, which is a Lisp language. I much prefer Common Lisp and Scheme, uh, and. This wonderful guy, I've become long distance friends with uh, him, a, a Russian married to a German woman living in Germany, uh, got my book. And uh, I think I was probably pretty open, at least on social media, that like, you know, closure is not really my language, but I've had to use it so much for work that I wanted to take some of the stuff that I usually do in common lisp. And, uh, and and just hit a, a new audience. And Alex uh, rewrote a whole bunch of my examples and said to use them. And so next time I updated the book, I took out some of my inferior code examples and put his in, you know, with a nice thank you to him, right? <laughs> uh, uh, and so it, it's, a, it's, it's really a different style of publishing, you know, uh, I, I don't know if, if you've ever written a book, you know, with McGraw-Hill or something, but it's a very rigid uh, process you go through.
it's uh you 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 gave me um the best gift a podcast guest can give, which is you naturally segued into the into the next part of the interview for me, which is going from <laughs> from you know talking about the content of your book and who it's for and and stuff like that into the kind of process by which you wrote it and and you've done your other books and I just it's it's really actually I mean in so many ways you're sort of like the 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 author we built Lean Pub for right because um you know you I mean you said you had that story your first book was with a with a sort of conventional publisher uh, and they gave you you learned you learned some things from them like you know you know maybe having a, a title that's you know, sort of more evocative with some keywords from the moment is really important but then you but then at some stage late having written more books you you then did one of the first Creative Commons kind of books out there and then and one of the things you mentioned was like you're getting hundreds of downloads a day and feedback from people which is super interesting right and like you know in 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 the sort of in as it were the kind of olden days which still exist for some you know book publishing processes um your book goes out there and hopefully you get sales and get on bestseller lists and maybe you do readings and stuff like that but and of course you get letters and things like that but um but the idea of getting uh first of all that boost to one's career from one's first book once you're established then being able to sort of like have the resources and the wherewithal to put out a book maybe for free uh but but that serves this purpose that hundreds of people a day discover and can use and then to sort of like kind of go um with galaxy brain and sort of move to lean pub where like i want to be able to sort of like update it you know five times in a week and you know i want i want to sort of get get feedback from people where they're helping me actually improve my book and they're giving it to me because they want my book to be better or it actually one one experience we heard is like people is readers are just really bugged by something and they're like they're almost mad at the author you know like fix this uh, here i did it for you um you know things like that um and and it, it is it is really amazing that that world that one can be in where you say with not all paper books are, are are awesome and serve great functions and stuff like that as well but once you really embrace that idea that you can have a book that's sort of updatable and changeable and you know in a sense kind of like collaborative but and like in particular like the sort of rather radical thing that you mentioned even even for a lean pub author which is deleting deleting chapters because they're outdated i think that's something that a lot of pe- most people would much rather kind of update it um but to just note you know that's not relevant anymore that's that's i don't know if i've actually had anyone on the podcast sort of mention doing that that before yeah well you know what 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 one of the examples that i cut was was a wonderful example is a natural language interface to a relational database and uh, Peter Peter Norvig, who's a really well-known guy at uh, Google and AI, uh, he was a tech editor on, on an early edition, and uh, he he said he said, "Hey, Mark, uh, that uh, the problem is that that example is so good it makes all your other examples look, eh. you know." And and that's and that's an example I ended up uh, uh, pulling out because I thought that what was a really technology demo was not relevant to what I I thought readers would like to do. And I thought, is there any way to modernize that example? And I went, no. And so pull the plug on it. Uh, Yeah. But, but, you know, it's sort of like almost like an open source uh, ethos uh, in a a way. Um, You know, Usually, um, you know, one of the really nice things about being a writer is you, I, I've gotten to meet all kinds of people I would never get to meet if I hadn't written some books. Um, uh, and and usually readers are really nice to me. I mean, like, 
you know, the first 10 books I wrote for regular publishers that were printed in paper. Uh, one was a UML uh, book, uh, um, Unified Modeling Language. Uh, and I got the, I got hate mail from a reader because I had uh, put a longer program listing in a appendix. Uh, and he was making a guesstimate of the number of trees that I had murdered, you know, so <laughs> you, you do get uh, a little bit of pushback, but it's, it's very rare. And I did something that maybe I shouldn't have done, but uh, about maybe it's like a little over two years ago, I thought, you know, I'm using a, a Creative Commons um, uh, no commercial reuse but otherwise reuse it with attribution. You can give it away. So if somebody buys the book and have a PDF, they can give it to their two colleagues at work or their brother-in-law. And with the Creative Commons license, that's okay. Uh, that's that's perfectly legal and okay. And, and, and I don't mind doing that. But a few years ago, I got the idea that wouldn't it be cool if like some student wanted to use part of my book for a paper or or somebody was writing instruction manual for something and that they could take some of the text and reuse it, change it any way they want and just simply put an attribution back to the website. So if somebody might see the attribution, might purchase it. Um, and I let that sit for, I think I did that for a little over a year and I then decided that that was a little bit too far because I really do like uh, getting credit <laughs> for things. And just just a few people were, were very bitter that I did that. And I asked them, I said, oh, were you taking advantage of that? You know, tell me the circumstances and, you know, do something to make you happy again. And they said, oh, no, we weren't doing it. We just liked the idea of it. Uh, and so I got, I got some pushback on that. But you know what? People were entitled to their own opinions and, you know, and whatnot. Uh, so, so I went back to the... Uh, the share alike, uh, no commercial reuse. So in other words, somebody could not take something I published on Lean Pub and sell it elsewhere. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. Actually, that's um, one of the great sort of uh, details I really liked. But when we talk about the sort of like life of the working author, right, is actually, you know, the, you know, one of those details is actually dealing with with negative feedback sometimes. And in the case where you're sort of doing what, what most people consider to be kind of like experimentation and changing things up and taking things away and adding new things, uh, you can get people who just get just they just sort of generally don't like it. They're like, this is kind of confusing. I mean, to this day on Lean Pub, still we get, you know, I say still as though as though everyone knows who we are and what we do. But, you know, we do get people who are like, I bought a book and it's only one third finished. What's what's wrong with you? You know, uh, um, and we say, oh, no, you're the, the author's publishing, publishing it in progress. And, you, and you're going to get all the updates for free. And all of a sudden, people can go from like, giving you the middle finger to being like, oh my God, what a cool idea. I can't wait for the next chapter. 
or else they're like, screw you, give me a refund, and which is which is fine, you know, if, if that's not what you're expecting. But but when you're doing, if you're experimenting with sort of different publishing models and different licenses and things like that, you're going to get pushback from people from time to time. But you know, one one way to fortify yourself is to think they wouldn't be pushing back if they didn't care in some way. Um, well, uh, Mark, thank you for uh, talking to uh, me and to our audience uh, on this episode uh, at length um, and so well, and such an interesting story that you have to tell. And it's such an interesting time that we're in. And I think you really captured that excitement. Um, but just before I let you go, um, the last question I always like to ask uh, on these episodes, if the guest is a is a lean pub author is, if there was one magical feature we could build for you as an author, or if there was one terrible thing that after all these years, you've been still shaking your fist at lean pub about that we <clears throat> for you, can you think of anything that you would ask us to do? Yeah, as, as a matter of fact, um, this hits me about once a year. I'll, I'll go through a manuscript. I'll just read the whole book and start making little changes on the whole thing. Just do some rewording and I will make it so the manuscript is no longer legal markup. And it takes me a little bit of time to find out if I where which chapter and which location. Uh, so there's there's no like error code. Uh, you know, like you, you might be inserting some file and then and, and the markup for including an image is, is misformed or something. And so um, the, the way I do that is I, I do a binary search and I, I publish a, a preview book with half the chapters, you know, and then find the half and then half it again, half it again. Um, and uh, sometimes that's like 10 minutes and one time it took me like an hour, well over an hour. So I, I love the platform and uh, and if, if I were implementing it, that would be a real nuisance to do because you would have to uh, track and yeah, I have not looked at the source code to, to the markdown uh, system, but you'd have to track the location and when there's an error sort of make that visible but i um since i run into that once a year and it probably cost me an average of like maybe 20 minutes of my time this is this is not a serious complaint right but if there's one thing that i that would change that would be uh, be wonderful yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for sharing that. Just for anyone uh, listening for whom that, that might sound a bit mysterious. Um, so when you when you write a Lean Pub book, you write it in plain text. Um, uh, we we actually do have an upload mode for people who are like, screw all this. I just I've got my own way of doing it. I want to upload a PDF and an EPUB and and then that. So we do have that. But if you're writing a book in in Lean Pub, as it were, you write in plain text. Uh, since you're writing in plain text, that means that there's no you can't go Command B to make something bold. You have to put the instruction in there saying like, make this bold. And we have a sort of syntax for that. Um, uh, you know, the, the way I always like to explain it to people is like, it's, it's imagine you were writing on an old fashioned typewriter and you wanted to indicate something should be in italics. That's what the underline was for, um, was so that when you handed it over to someone who was going to make something out of it, um, they know, oh yeah, that's, that's, and so that's actually a markup syntax is just underlining, but in anyway, but, um, but what that means is you have to give this plain text manuscript over to LeanPub's book generators and they have to create ebook files out of it. Um, and if there's a certain category of, as it were, mistake in that markup, then that causes our book generation process to fail. And 
what lean pub doesn't do and i actually i actually do think this is a you're being sort of very generous by saying it's not the biggest problem but like that actually is a even if it only takes a little while to figure it out qualitatively the book generation process failed and no information about why that's actually that actually sucks um <laughs> quite a bit and we we do have a kind of hidden feature uh where you can get a kind of barfed out kind of error message thing but really what we should there's two things that we should and we've got this I, the reason i can speak about this at length like this is because we've had this feedback before um and there's there's two things really that we should have one day uh, one of which is robust error reporting. So you don't have to kind of do what you were describing, which is the same way we debug things, which is like, cut it in half, see if it fails, cut it in half, see if it fails. Or, or else what you can, one thing we recommend people to do is they make a book in our browser editor and then just put, paste one chapter in at a time, hit preview, see if that chapter runs. Um, but so A, we should have error reporting. It's line 52 in document five uh, that caused the problem uh, that would help people greatly but also real-time rendering so like having a side by side um so you can see what it'll look like in the in at least in the pdf or something like that is something we've had lots of people ask for too so thank you very much for that really good feedback you're, you're we, we really appreciate that and insofar as lean pub is usable it's because of great feedback from authors like you about things like that over the years uh well mark uh, thank you very much for taking time out of your day instead of being hiking out in the beautiful mountains of Sedona to, to talk to us. And thank you very much for being a Lean Pub author. We really appreciate you're, you're, it. You're, you're welcome. And and, 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 and and thanks for inviting me. This this was a uh, was, was was fun. Except for maybe the game part, I talked too much about myself, perhaps. <laughs> oh no, no, that's that's that that was wonderful. I enjoyed I enjoyed it. And um, I, I've got to say, as a podcast host, when when you when you at least for me, when you've got a guest who you know they can tell a good story well, carry on as long as you like. Uh, so thanks sure. very much. For <laughs> and as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.